you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series one episode at a time. However, in this bonus episode review series, I'm reviewing the 2019 Twilight Zone reboot from Monkey Paw Productions, hosted by Jordan Peele on CBS All Access. Um, you can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And you can also check out my other podcasts, The Obsessive Viewer over at obsessiveviewer.com and Tower Junkies, a Stephen King Dark Tower podcast at uh, towerjunkiespod.com. Today on the show, I'll be discussing Six Degrees of Freedom. It's the sixth episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it premiered on May 2nd, 2019 on CBS All Access. Um, before I get to my thoughts on Six Degrees of Freedom, however, I do have some news and some housekeeping and some other stuff to go through, <laughs> notes from previous episodes and everything. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to go ahead and go into that. First of all, um, I'm recording in a different space than I usually do, so just heads up if the sound quality is different. I'm recording in my bedroom slash office um, instead of my living room just because it's a little bit more comfortable. Um, so hopefully, I know like kind of the acoustics in this room are not that ideal, but um, hopefully it's not that bad. I'll evaluate how it sounds when I edit it and decide from there if I'll keep doing this. But anyway, um, yeah, so if there's any difference in sound quality... Sorry, or you're welcome, whichever side of the spectrum it lands on. If it sounds better, then you're welcome. If it's, it sounds terrible, then I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, um, hopefully, you know, it's good. So anyway, um, there are a couple things I want to bring up right up top. Um, I got some cool feedback and everything, um, that I wanted to share because I, uh, I love hearing from, uh, the listeners. So, uh, first up, I got a very nice email from a, a listener who emailed me a couple years ago, actually. If you want to hear that original email, I believe that was read back in episode 38, uh, my review of The Howling Man. So check that out there. But anyway, um, I think I did at least. I'm, I'm not sure where it was. But anyway, uh, the emailer in question, uh, uh, wrote me a new, new email when when they had emailed me a couple years ago they asked to remain anonymous that's why i'm being kind of coy with <laughs> with it so i don't know if they wanted me to keep them anonymous for this one or not but anyway uh this listener writes hi matt just a thanks for your review of wonderkind i felt pretty much the same as same as you your reviews are always so relatable to me and i basically listen to hear my own opinions expressed usually with more humor and depth than i could manage 
this is my second email to you. It was neat hearing you read the first one on the podcast. I think it was a couple years ago. Anyway, please continue at your own pace is fine. <laughs> Smiley face. Uh, so thank you so much for, for emailing in and, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, finding my reviews humorous because, <laughs> because so many people, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I like my sense of humor. Um, a lot of people find it kind of groan inducing. <laughs> so in this, this episode is going to be no different because I do have a, uh, what I would call a zinger lined up for one of the points that I'm going to make here. So stay tuned for that. So anyway, thank you so much for, um, for a, for emailing in. And of course you can, and everyone can email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And also just, uh, thank you for listening for so long. <laughs> it's been two years since this particular listener sent me an email. And obviously in those two years, I've gone through hiatuses, hiatus I, um, and, uh, kind of, it's been inconsistent to say the least in the last two years. So just the fact that anyone's still listening after going through those, those, uh, those prolonged hiatuses, uh, just means a lot to me because I really appreciate, um, your guys's, uh, loyalty and everything, even when I sometimes may think that I don't necessarily deserve it. <laughs> um, so anyway, thank you so much for writing in. Of course, uh, once again, you can email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Any feedback or thoughts or anything, feel free to send an email and I will read every single email you send. And then the other piece of housekeeping I want to bring up is good friend of the show, Robert, who's been a supporter for a long time uh, across all of the podcasts. He went on a bit of a review tear um, across all of the obsessive viewer podcasts on iTunes. And I wanted to read his, um, to read his email or read his uh, iTunes review of anthology here. So uh, he gave us five stars, which is obviously super appreciated. And the subject line is awesome podcast. So that's, that's very nice. So Robert writes, I love black mirror. And a couple years ago, I searched for black mirror podcasts. This one caught my eye and I haven't looked back. I'll always be grateful for this podcast because that's how I came in contact with the podcaster, Matt hurt. He's a great guy with movie and TV tastes similar to mine. I love the interactions with Matt. And even though I don't watch every Every episode of the Twilight Zone, I still enjoy listening to Matt's reviews on them. Really enjoying watching the reboot of the Twilight Zone and Matt's take on them. His reviews on Black Mirror are top notch, and I love hearing bonus reviews, especially the ones I get to pick. So, of course, Robert, thank you so much for uh, for that very kind iTunes review. It seriously means a lot, and I really, really can't say how much I appreciate it. And uh, and also just. Uh, in particular, I'm very curious what Robert thinks of this episode of the Twilight Zone, Six Degrees of Freedom, um, because I know that he is a fan of the movie Sunshine, because I believe he uh, had me review it in a bonus bonus review some time ago. And I mean, Sunshine's one of my favorite movies ever. In this episode of the Twilight Zone, uh, kind of, I don't want to say borrows a lot, but it it definitely owes a bit of gratitude toward uh, Sunshine, because there's a lot of things that are similar to sunshine. So I'm very curious what Robert in particular thinks of this episode of uh, the twilight zone and you, everyone else listening. Um, so let me know what you think. Of course, Matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Um, so a couple of uh, pieces of news I want to kind of go through um, news and opinion, I guess. So the first one is that black mirror season five is coming. Of course, I mentioned before that the new season is going to be three episodes. They're going to release on Netflix on June 5th. Can't wait. Super excited. Um, I did, I did want to highlight that the 
Netflix YouTube page um, released trailers for all three of the episodes. So like individual YouTube trailers for each episode of the new season. Um, I haven't watched them just because I like to go into the show blind. But I did put links to each individual um, trailer in the show notes of this episode. So there's going to be, uh, in no particular order, the episodes are going to be Smithereens, uh, Striking Vipers, and Rachel and Jack and Ashley too. So that's going to be, God, that's in like a week and a half. I'm so excited. I can't wait. Um, so we'll see how Black Mirror does. As soon as I finish this review series on The Twilight Zone, I'm going to go right into Black Mirror Season 5. So look ahead to that. And then the other kind of piece of news or note that I have is that I came across this um, article on Hypable.com, which Hypable is actually a really good website. I have friends who actually write for Hypable uh, that I met through uh, conventions here in Indianapolis. And it's a great group of people and they kind of really celebrate fandom and everything. And, and it's a really, it's a really cool website. However, this particular article kind of caught my ire a little bit and I kind of went on a little bit of a Twitter rant about it. Um, so the article posits like the headline is CBS all access is preventing some fans from experiencing great black led shows in that it kind of goes, I don't know this, this, the premise of this article kind of um, got my ire just because the premise is that, okay, CBS has these great, like, diverse, diversely produced and led shows, but by putting them on CBS All Access, they are, uh, like, as it says, preventing some fans from watching it. So, kind of the whole thing is the same thing that kind of has been bothering me about the outcry over CBS All Access as a platform. Um, it seems that there is a vocal uh, corner of the inter internet that is completely opposed to buying or, or subscribing to a new streaming site specifically for the shows that they want to see. So like CBS all access now has star Trek discovery, the twilight zone. They just in the last uh, couple of days just showed the, uh, teaser trailer for Star Trek Picard, which, uh, Patrick Stewart is repri reprising his role as, uh, as, oh my God, uh, Jean-Luc Picard, uh, for this new series that is going to be exclusively on CBS All Access. And I had a really interesting Twitter conversation also with, uh, Curtis, I, I actually don't know for sure if he listens to Anthology. I know he listens to The Obsessive Viewer. But anyway, he he said that uh, it was a whole thing about pirating and everything. And because I was kind of annoyed that people were like, okay, well, I'm not going to watch uh, Star Trek Picard because I don't want to, or I'm, I'm going to pirate Star Trek Picard because it's on CBS All Access and I don't want to buy CBS All Access. So, like, my kind of pitch was that, okay, well, people that are complaining about not getting CBS All Access and are going to be quote unquote forced to pirate a show, um, they're just harming the show. Like if if in some universe Star Trek Picard does not um perform well, I would imagine that those same people that pirated the show will kind of bitch and moan about how, oh, Star Trek Picard didn't get renewed or whatever. It's like, okay, well, maybe part of that is because you didn't sign up for the service to, and get your viewing of the show tracked by CBS so that they know how many people are actually watching it as opposed to just pirating it and uh, 
you know, not supporting it that way. But anyway, I digress. Um, I had a really good conversation with Curtis about that and he said that, well, on, on that hand, it doesn't, um, that, that argument doesn't really hold up because like the music industry and, um, Oh, what, what was the other example? Anyway, like, like people pirate music and everything and that doesn't really affect it, which also now that I'm thinking about it, like pirating music does, at least in the early days of piracy and everything, it did have like a profound impact on, on, uh, on the music industry. But I, I digress there. So this article says that, um, that CBS All Access, it's taking the position that by putting these shows on CBS All Access, it is, it, it's literally preventing fans from experiencing like shows that are celebrating diversity. And I will say that right off the top, CBS All Access is fantastic with their original programming and how it is uh, having such a diverse cast and crew in front of, behind the camera, show running the shows. It's like it's a very diverse uh, diversity um, uh, celebrating kind of kind of platform. So, and like, that's great. I am all for that. That is fantastic. I've, I've said from, I've said for years that like, I don't have a problem with diversity because I'm not a bigoted asshole, but also I don't have a problem with it because it is, it's like, by definition, they are diverse voices. Like it is bringing new voices to pop culture and everything that have been, have not been able to had, have their voice out there because they haven't been, um, given the same opportunities as quite frankly, just white people. <laughs> um, we've had, we've, we've had a lot of stuff over the several, several, several decades that have been going, that have been going out. And that's kind of why a lot of stuff is, I don't know, being recycled. But anyway, once again, I digress. So this article really kind of peeved me off because it's, it's taking the position that like, okay, by that CBS all access is it, it, the tone of it almost seemed like they were saying that, it, I don't want to say it was a conspiracy, but like they're trying to, like, it makes it sound like, okay, well, uh, that's great that they're having these diverse shows and everything, but they're just putting it, like, they're, uh, putting it under the rug on CBS All Access and that no one can see it. It's like, that's not the case. It's not, <sighs> by putting it on CBS All Access, um, they are not putting it under the rug or keeping it from the masses and everything. And this is a common kind of, I think mis misconception about CBS all access as a platform. Uh, people seem to think that, okay, CBS all access is a streaming service from CBS. And by putting shows on CBS all access, instead of broadcasting it on CBS, where it is much more accessible from the masses, they are like in, in my Twitter conversation with Curtis, he said that it seems like they don't have the, um, confidence or they don't have the faith in the shows to put them on network TV. And I just, I just completely disagree with that assertion because what I, how I feel about it is that CBS All Access is a new streaming platform. It is very young and it is competing with Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, um, the, the smaller channels like Shudder and the C Criterion channel and, um, a bunch of other ones that you can find, like HBO Go to an extent, or I guess it would be HBO Now. Oh no, HBO Go. Anyway, um, so they are competing with so many different streaming platforms. The, the landscape of television has changed so drastically that network TV is not 
as lucrative as it once was. It is more, I would argue that it is probably, I don't have the data to back this up. So my opinion is that it seems like it would be more lucrative for uh, networks and whatnot to have a streaming platform where they control the content. They don't have to rely strictly on advertisers to, to ad support their individual shows. And they can track the numbers of who watches, who watches each show. Like they have the exact numbers as opposed to on network TV when they have like the Nielsen ratings that are just taking samples and just extrapolate, uh, extrapolating samples from it. So anyway, um, what it comes down to is that this article says, saying that CBS All Access is preventing some fans from experiencing great black led shows. I disagree with that wholeheartedly because A, no one is forcing you into a in into a year long contract with any streaming service. Uh you pay six dollars for CBS All Access for a month. If you want to wait until the shows all have their episodes out and ready, you can just pay $6, watch the season, and then cancel your subscription. And it costs $6. That's it. And kind of my counter argument to that is like if, say for sake of argument that uh, Star Trek and The Twilight Zone were not on CBS All Access, say that it was uh, on Netflix or Hulu or another streaming service that is not intrinsically tied with a network uh, a, a, one of the big three networks. I don't think people would be complaining about it because that is just the status quo. Like, okay, everyone has Netflix because Netflix is ubiquitous and has, has been around and everything. The fact that CBS All Access is new and is an offshoot of one of the big three networks is, I think that that's kind of maybe scaring people or, or pissing people off because it is just a, an extension of network TV. But to bring it back to, um, uh, what I was saying before that I just remembered I didn't finish up this thought. Um, the, th- the, the kind of hypothetical thought or the argument that CBS does not have the confidence in their shows to release it on network TV. So that's why they're putting on, on all, on all access. Uh, I feel that that is completely inaccurate because the way that I see it is that CBS All Access is young. It's like I said, it's competing with other streaming platforms. It's trying to make a name for itself. So the best way to make a name for itself is to create original series from properties, intellectual properties that have a built-in fan base. I think I've said this all before on the podcast, but anyway, um, so like putting Star Trek Beyond or uh, Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard and The Twilight Zone on CBS All Access, that is guaranteeing that people that are fans of those properties will get CBS All Access. That is a very smart business decision, in my opinion, because that is that is helping to create more subscribers. And that's stuff that has already reaped uh, uh, that CBS has already reaped the benefits of because they've said, even though they're not giving out their, you know, um, numbers and everything. They said that, okay, well, Star Trek Discovery had more, got, gained more subscribers through that. And then, uh, the Twilight Zone broke that record and we have more subscribers than ever before because of C, uh, because of the Twilight Zone. <sighs> so anyway, I've been rambling about this. Um, the link to this article is in the show notes of this episode. Once again, I just think that that's kind of, I don't know. It, it feels just, um, uh, no, I don't know. It, it feels just wrong for them to say, for, for someone to posit that, uh, by putting it on CBS All Access, it is 
keeping people from experiencing great black lead shows. Like, I think that that's just completely inaccurate and not really fair, to be honest, because it's a streaming service. It's like I said, it's not, it's not like you need to call your cable provider and be like, Hey, I want this channel on my, on my, uh, package that I'm paying hundreds of dollars for. Um, it's just a single, like it's a self, like a, um, single serve kind of, kind of thing. You subscribe to it, six bucks, or if you don't want ads, 10 bucks, it's worth it. Um, 10 bucks for the month and you get access to original series and everything. And then you can cancel at any time. I don't get what, I don't get the argument that it is putting it, uh, putting its content behind. I don't get the argument that putting it behind this paywall is, um, ex- exclusionary to people, uh, to, to fans and everything because just don't, don't buy Starbucks one day and you've paid for CBS all access. I don't know. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, and frankly, I've devoted too much time to that, uh, argument so far anyway in this episode. So this is already getting bloated. I'm so sorry. So notes from previous episodes of the Twilight Zone. So, um, in, the Wonderkind, an episode that, uh, again, I didn't really care for that much. Um, I missed a couple of pieces of trivia. One is that the name uh, Oliver Foley, um, his mother is named Helen Foley, which is, of course, an homage to one of uh, Rod Serling's favorite teachers growing up, who was then given the immortal uh, character, like, uh, character name, I guess, was immortal. Her name was immortalized on the original Twilight Zone in the episode Nightmare as a Child. Uh, the main character was named Helen Foley. And then I believe that in um, the movie version, it, was there a movie version of It's a Good Life? I don't know. One of the One of the movie segments has a character named Helen Foley. And yeah, and also trivia for the Wonderkind as well is that Oliver's sister was played by Jacob Tremblay's younger sister in real life. So that's cool. Um, those are notes from previous episodes. And let's go into my review of Six Degrees of Freedom. Uh, plot summary, according to CBS All Access, is a space crew preparing for the first human flight to Mars is faced with a life-altering decision and its consequences. Um, so... Before I get into it, the talent rundown for this episode is Six Degrees of Freedom stars DeWanda Wise as Flight Commander Alexa Brandt. And that triggered my... As soon as I said that, I realized that I had my Amazon Echo on, so I've muted that. And it still went, so okay. Let me test it. Alexa, Alexa, Alexa. Good. Okay. My God. So, DeWanda Weiss plays Flight Commander Alexa Brandt. Uh, she was recently in the television version on Netflix of She's Gotta Have It, Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, um, co-starring as Jerry, uh, as mission specialist Jerry Pearson is Jefferson White. He's had a bunch of TV roles, like in Blind Spot and The Alienist, and he's also credited in Point of Origin. Uh, which is not the next episode of the Twilight Zone, but the episode after that. So curious how that factors in, uh, or how that will, uh, how that will be in that episode. Um, Jonathan Weitzel plays pilot Casey Donlin. Uh, he has a recurring role or had a recurring role in Riverdale. Um, he was also in Hold the Dark and Bad Times at the El Royale last year. Uh, Lucinda Dryzek plays flight surgeon Catherine Langford. 
otherwise known as Katie in the episode. She has a lot of UK TV credits. I didn't make a note of any of the shows or anything, but she's she's done very well for herself on on television uh, across the pond. And uh, as flight engineer Ray Tanaka is Jessica Williams. I probably know her best from The Daily Show. She was a correspondent for a while, but she's also been in uh, the HBO series Girls. Uh, she was in Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and she's in. She's also more recently in Olivia Wilde's directorial debut, Booksmart, which I believe just came out yesterday or the day before. Uh, or this weekend, I should say. Um, and then rounding out the cast is Joyce Kurtz as the voice of the AI on board the ship named Tina. And this is her only credit on anywhere on IMDb. So I found that kind of interesting. Writers for this episode were Heather Ann Campbell. She was a writer on SNL in 2011. And uh, co-writing this episode is Glenn Morgan, who, of course, I mentioned in Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. He... Or, um, no, uh, one of the other episodes, I think. Um, maybe A Traveler, but yeah, definitely A Traveler. Um, he was a big name in the X-Files universe. So, uh, rounding out the talent rundown, director for this episode was Jacob Verbruggen. Uh, he previously directed an episode of Black Mirror, the episode Men Against Fire, and, uh, he has also directed episodes of The Alienist. Okay, so with that talent rundown run down, um, let me go ahead and go into my initial thoughts on Six Degrees of Freedom. Um, overall thoughts um, upon my first viewing of it is that this was my favorite of the season so far. Um, there are some minor issues here and there, and it's a bit derivative in places of other uh, space um, movies and shows. But it's like the the whole plot of this episode is playing directly into my specific science fiction sensibilities. So I was kind of destined to uh, love this episode. So having said that, I do love the episode, but I do have some um, critiques here and there. But uh, yeah, I'll get to those as I go through my review. And without further ado, let me go into my review of uh, Six Degrees of Freedom. So right off the bat, I am totally eating my words from my review of Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. Um, in that review episode, I said that the giant Mission to Mars backdrop in the airport um like people were saying that, oh, it's foreshadowing a space episode. And in that review, I said that I don't think that that's the case. I think that that's just really, just really there. And because the words that were, were on it were, uh, directly from planetary.org, I think, um, talking about the different missions to, to Mars that we've had, uh, the rovers and everything. Um, but I'm definitely in my words because that giant-ass Mission to Mars backdrop was definitely foreshadowing this episode. Uh, so they must have just pulled the words from from that website. So, you know, that's fine. I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong. So anyway, uh, the episode opens um, with these blurred images um, of a burning car in a desert, it looks like, uh, the White House. Um, worth mentioning that there are no penguins on the White House lawn. <laughs> uh, so that's definitely a plus. Um, there's a shot of marching soldiers or policemen in riot gear. I couldn't really, uh, tell. There's also a footage of a nuclear bomb detonating. It looks like a actual footage of a test detonation, I guess. And then also footage from one of the moon landings, maybe Apollo 11. I couldn't really tell. Um, by the way, there's a great, great documentary 
about Apollo, Apollo 11 that just came out. It's called Apollo 11. Uh, definitely check it out. It's such a cool, such a cool documentary because it's not talking heads or anything. It's just archival footage, um, kind of put together to chronologically tell, tell the story of the Apollo 11 mission. And it's just entirely archival footage. There's no talking head, no voiceover or anything it, in, in doing that. It is incredibly immersive and, uh, uh, really fascinating, really great, um, documentary. So check that out. It's Apollo 11. It is, was just recently released on home video and digital. So check that out. So after those shots, we get a black screen that, and then the words briefing number 10150608816, uh, with a voiceover saying that. So right off the bat, this is our, we have our 1015 reference, um, that has been happening throughout all of these episodes, except I don't remember one, uh, I don't remember there being a reference to 1015 in the Wonderkind. Um, if you guys know of one that I'm missing, um, in that episode, please let me know because it's kind of, it's kind of driving me just a little bit crazy. Um, also, I don't think that there was a reference to 1015 in the comedian, but I should go back and check that out. So anyway, um, in addition to the 1015, the other numbers, 060816, um, that's a, recurrence of sorts of the lottery numbers from replay. Um, if you remember in the hotel room, uh, the lottery numbers in replay were zero, uh, were eight, six, 20 and 16. And I still have no idea what the significance of those numbers are. Um, it feel like that. I think the recurrence of them in this episode being zero, six, zero, eight, one, six kind of confirms that whatever, significance those numbers pose it is in reference to a date so august 6 2016 or if we are uh to be um uh if it's kind of the british way or the rest of the world's way of telling dates um it would be june 8th 2016 so either one like i couldn't find any correlation as to what as to what the significance of that date is um and really it's starting to bug me now that it's come up in another episode it, it's kind of it kind of bothers me that i don't know what it is so anyway uh after the cut to black we get the introduction of the bradbury heavy mission to mars uh we get a weird promotional video introduction um and I think that it's meant to be the aliens evaluating or retelling the story of the Bradbury Heavy mission. Um, in the closed captioning on CBS All Access, when that voiceover is, um, is read, is, is, comes back at the end of the episode, I think that they, I think that the closed caption says that it's, um, identifies the voice as, I think, um, public affairs officer. So I guess that it's a public affairs officer for the alien race that is kind of, uh, overseeing everything. Um, kind of interesting. I'll get to that at the end of this review. Um, and, but in the moment, in this opening moment, it seems kind of peculiar, but it does kind of streamline the introduction of the cast and it really sufficiently dumps all of the exposition we need and establishes, uh, it establishes the cast, their functions on the crew, and it also establishes that we are in the process of destroying our planet. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and just play that clip here because for two reasons. One, uh, because it's going to reorient everyone with, <laughs> with the cast and crew and their roles in the, in the episode. Also, I want to highlight the music. Like this, this episode really, 
uh, really swing for the fences, swung for the fences, um, uh, as in regards to the music. Like, I love the score of this episode. So here's a clip from the opening moments of Six Degrees of Freedom. The Bradbury Heavy Mission. Earth is a planet of many wonders, a rare mix of biological diversity and abundant resources. Humanity has always endeavored to explore and discover in the face of even the longest odds. But the third planet from Seoul finds itself on the brink of catastrophe. Environmental changes and political unrest has left Earth's long-term prospects in a tenuous situation. As a result, new horizons have grown increasingly appealing. All systems are a go for the first human flight to the planet Mars and the start of colonization of the solar system. A large porthole is positioned over the center flight commander's seat. For launch and until Mars landing, it is sealed and covered to decrease radiation exposure. The final air-to-ground communication checks are conducted by Flight Commander Alexa Brandt. MLC? Bradbury confirms porthole radiation shield closure nominal and secured for launch. And pilot Casey Donlan. Tina confirms all near-Earth network tracking frequencies are locked. Flight engineer Ray Tanaka monitors onboard fuel cells, preparing to transfer to ship's internal power. LCC, Bradbury reporting six good APUs. Flight surgeon Catherine Langford monitors the crew vitals. Jerry, this monitor's reading that you shouldn't have had the cauliflower at the pre-launch dinner. While mission specialist Jerry Pearson awaits all systems are go. Well, when the ship launches, I will too, huh? They are aided by the Onboard Transport Information Network Artificial Intelligence Unit, known as TINA. So as that voiceover is going over what's going on, uh, we get a look at the launch pad and the, the spaceship that they are on. Um, and I want to just say that the design of the launch pad and that wide shot of everything around it is abs- absolutely gorgeous. Like, I love the level of detail in it. Um, I don't know if they did... I mean, I, I imagine that it's all CGI and everything, but I... Like... If it is like that's, I'm, I would say 90%, I'd be 90% sure that it's all CGI and everything, but on the off chance that they used miniatures in any way, it just looks really good. Like I just, I, I really like the level of detail to it. Like it looks almost to the level of if they were to use miniatures for it, which miniatures just look gorgeous in their own right. Like look at, um, alien for, for a good, um, for a good, um, example of, of, using miniatures for spacecraft and everything. Um, and also Blade Runner, of course. So the design of the spacecraft itself is modern to an extent, despite the high level of tech that's on board. And like the design of it really harkens back to the space shuttle program. And I just, I love the design for that. I, I love that as a design. And there's a shot from the launch pad looking up at the spaceship that is just fantastic. Like right off the bat, this episode just looks gorgeous. And I think that I feel like maybe I, I, I don't want to say like, oh, they, used the budget 
uh, for that design because the the for the most part the entire episode takes place in in a confined space but if that's the case if they utilize the budget for for those wide angle shots and those those detailed shots of the exterior of the ship uh kudos to them cuz they really used it well um but we get a look at the space when we get a look at the spaceship it is shown that it's Whipple Aeronautics and okay I get that this is a running joke or Easter egg at this point. It's been like it's it's making things it's making certain things linked together within the episode within the series, and that's that's fine, I guess. But six episodes in, and I'm really kind of tired of seeing Whipple everywhere. Um, it was really cool seeing that Easter egg in Nightmare Thirty Thousand Feet as the as the uh, brand of the MP3 player. Like that was a really cool nod to the original series. Granted, I haven't seen the Brain Center at Whipple's, so I don't know if the ubiquity of the brand throughout this entire season harkens back to that episode in a significant way or not. But as of right now, it's just way too much Whipple everywhere. Like we've got the MP3 player in nightmare 30,000 feet. We've got Whipple news on the wonderkind. We've got, uh, the pinball machine in the wonderkind as well. Um, I don't, uh, I don't remember if there's anything in a traveler, um, nothing in the comedian, but anyway, there's, there's a lot of Whipple, branding throughout this series and it kind of makes me question like um is whipple like i i don't know if whipple is supposed to be like the the apple uh like i get the sense that like okay whipple is the apple of this like universe uh loosely connected universe of the twilight zone in this iteration of it it's like the apple if apple also partnered with like spacex now it's like it's way too much and and um and like Fox News or whatever. Like it's just, it's too much. It's just too much. And like it makes me wonder like, are there other companies from the original series that they could use? Or hell, even just use character names as brand names. Like introduce, um, I don't know, introduce some kind of variety to it. Like, I mean, <laughs> this is, I was trying to brainstorm like different ways they could use uh, character names. And the first one I could come up with is like, okay, like if they pass by like a bookstore and they could call it Bemis Bookstore, like that would be a cool little, cute little Easter egg. Um, but, and I'm so sorry for this, but, um, you might say that I, ha- uh, by seeing so much of this branding throughout the, uh, series, you might say that it's giving me whippelash. Like whiplash, okay. So the voiceover introductions uh, aside, like uh, the, the, in addition to, <laughs> I'm so sorry for that. So in 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 addition to introducing the cast uh, and the crew of the of the mission, the voiceover also introduces the porthole that's over the flight deck, and it explains that it will be closed throughout the duration of their um, flight to Mars to protect the crew from radiation. And it's seeding the idea that it could be a simulation. Like it's, it's kind of because they're not getting any actual like viewpoint of the outside. And I, I kind of like that in terms of a mystery thing because it's like it, it, it tracks pretty well. Um, but it's also like you kind of question it. And I, I kind of like that as, as a bit of mystery in the episode. So when we get a rundown of the crew as well, it ends with, uh, 
introducing us to the AI unit that's aboard the ship uh, named Tina. And I assume that this has to be a reference to Talkie Tina in the original series. Um, Living Doll, is it? I, I get that confused with... Yeah, it's Living Doll, I think. Anyway, I had the same mistake or the same issue a couple episodes ago. But I really like that Easter egg because it's slightly more subtle than some of the other Easter eggs throughout the season. Like, there have been so many Easter eggs that are just in your face, and that's something that's kind of been getting to me there's one later in this episode that i'll get to that just kind of i'm i'm just like this would have been better if it wasn't just in the full frame of the of the scene but i like the idea of having an ai unit aboard the ship as uh named tina and that's the only like it's not even from my understanding obviously it's not like a uh a sound alike to the talkie Tina. It's just, Hey, this AI is called Tina. It's an, it's a piece of machinery that can talk and, uh, interact with, with the crew. And I just, I like that because that's all we need. Like that's, that's all we need. Also just the idea of the ship having an AI on it is just a complete total staple of science fiction in terms of, uh, space odysseys and stuff. And I just, I love that. Uh, it, cause I just, I love that type of thing. In, in science fiction. So at this point, they are T minus nine minutes from launch. And this is where I have, have to lodge like my first real complaint. Um, cause they're about to launch in 10 minutes. And I don't know, like there are surely countless constant pre-launch checks. Um, and everything and like mission control just say like, okay, well, uh, let's, we got to do this stuff. So stand by. So. Their reaction to that is to um, uh, mute ground control and start singing a song, <laughs> um, even though that comes into play later in the episode. Like I, I don't know. It just it just rubbed me the wrong way. It felt so cringy. Like also just like the singing, like them singing along is so goofy. It's like they're trying a little bit too hard to be like lighthearted in this in this scene and also there's a contrast to that like it it shouldn't be as lighthearted cuz like they've been training for this particular moment for 4 years and they're the few the first human uh space mission to mars and it's like i don't know just something about it just didn't sit right with me it just it just it just made me just like roll my eyes just a little bit and i kind of i don't know it kind of bothered me a little bit it didn't break the episode or anything but i was just like i kind of cringed just a little bit but their uh little cockpit um or flight deck i guess um concert gets interrupted by ground control because all hell starts breaking loose um and at this moment, like this, con- like the concept of this episode is absolutely fantastic. Um, it's a crew of five astronauts launching at the moment that nuclear war breaks out on the planet. And that obviously puts a massive damper on the mission itself and changes it entirely. And they have, so at this moment, they have 10 minutes until contact, like the nuclear, the, the, the nukes hit. And that's nine minutes and there's nine minutes until launch. So they have like a minute, um, of grace, uh, like, uh, like they have a minute window where they can escape and potentially escape from, you know, the planet, obviously, or they can abort the mission and leave the, leave the ship. And I don't know. I feel like, first of all, I feel like 10 minutes is not nearly, uh, long enough, uh, a length of a uh, long enough time to get them out of the ship and to safety. And that's something that I think it's Casey, the uh, pilot uh, mentions, like he says that we would get, 
like we would be nuked by the time we get to like level 45 or whatever. Um, so they vote on whether or not they should launch or abort. And, uh, Jerry hesitates after he sees the screen malfunction. Um, and he says that he hesitated. He ends up voting that they, that they go with the launch. Um, but he says that he hesitated because he doesn't know how this could possibly be happening. And that's kind of like our first inclination or the, it's seeding the plot later in the episode where he kind of has a mental break. So Brant, the commander, makes the decision to launch despite having a four to one vote. And Ray Tanaka is the one that has the dissenting vote of, um, to, to abort. And so, yeah, so, so they decide to launch. And I really like the way that the displays show just the audio wavelength when sound is coming from like the, the flight deck and everything. Um, it just looks cool. I, I, I just, I like seeing the audio wavelength on it, the display. And so they start to launch and then that's when we transition to Peel's narration. But before I get to that, the camera work and lighting as the ship launches and the camera pulls back and spins to focus on Peel during the narration is really great. And like the flashing lights are a little bit seizure inducing possibly, but just like the design of it is, is really cool. Like I really like that. Like I feel like that type of scenario, like having like a, like a setting that's on a ship that is launching into space. I feel like that is, a tricky thing to depict on film because it has the potential to look hokey. Like it has the potential to look like, I like, okay, the original Star Trek series has that kind of like goofy, like, Oh, like everyone's shaking at the same time. And like, that's endearing and everything. And it's not as bad as like parodies of that would, would have you believe. But there is also, there's always that type of, um, uh, threat when, in, when you're filming that kind of thing. And I feel like this episode does a good job of depicting, the uh the the interior of the of the uh spaceship as it is traveling through space and off of the launch platform so um here's where we get peel's opening narration i'm gonna go ahead and play that audio here so here is peel's narration for six degrees of freedom five voyagers setting sail to a mysterious red light 35 million miles across an empty sea Soaring within the greatest invention ever created by the human spirit to escape a catastrophe made possible by the most destructive regions of the human mind. Individual madness or shared nightmare? The answer lies in their search for safe harbor. Here, in the Twilight Zone. So recently in these bonus episodes, I've been kind of logging my complaints with Peel's narration. Uh, just the writing of each narration has been kind of following a formula and everything. And this narration kind of follows a similar kind of formula. It's just introducing just the people in the crew and everything. But I just, I love, I love the narration in this episode. Like this opening narration is very good. It's my favorite so far. Um, I just, I just think that it brings us into the, um, atmosphere no pun intended of the episode and the plot really well so um yeah so moving forward the uh mission is called the bradbury heavy mission to mars um i feel like that has to be a ray bradbury reference who uh he had one uh obviously prolific science fiction writer and one of the one of the like big names in science fiction writing 
but he also did have one episode of the Twilight Zone uh, called I Sing the Body Electric in, I believe it was season five. Um, but also one of the crew members, obviously, uh, Jessica Williams' character's name is Ray. Um, so I kind of wonder if that's kind of also paying tribute to Bradbury in its own way. So once they launch, they try to reestablish contact with Earth, but they just get an emergency broadcast message. And they also get, like, they intercept a Russian broadcast message as well, kind of saying the same thing. And um, at that moment, the pilot, Casey, asks Jerry, if uh, who's the mission specialist, um, if they can open the porthole to see what's happening on Earth. And they can't do it if they're going to go ahead and go to Mars. Because at this moment, they're in orbit of Earth. Um, so... I can't remember the rationale, but basically if they open it, they can only stay in orbit. Um, but if they keep it closed and decide to, uh, go, move on to Mars, they can, they will have to leave it, um, closed. So at this point, they kind of have their next, um, debate, I guess, of whether or not they should continue orbiting Earth for the rest of their days or if they should go ahead and can, and continue with the mission. So, at this moment, Brant gives a speech that further establishes some backstory for all the characters, and I—I I don't know. Okay, so, um, so she says, like she mentions to Casey, she's like, uh, "We've wanted this mission since they, since we were," and she says, "In firsties with Red Elev Squadron." No idea what that is. Um, it's an interesting piece of world building, if not a reference to something. I feel like that could be an Easter egg of some kind, but I didn't pick up on it at all. And then she mentions that Jerry beat like 15,000 applicants for his spot. And then he, uh, he can, he, uh, corrects her and says like, well, actually it was 15,390. And so like those two examples are pretty, um, are pretty, like pretty, you know, interesting and everything but then she gets to katie and i i just i just had um so sorry i had another whiplash um a little bit of whiplash anyway where because she, she's like katie lost her marriage for this mission <laughs> and it's just like whoa that's a hard left turn brant like let's let's simmer down and then like after that she's just like ray's father died last month and we were all at the funeral and it's like okay what are you trying to say <laughs> like i get that like i get what she's saying that they're a family and everything and they're they're close knit and everything, but it's just like that's such a weird gulf between the two, um, or between these 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 examples, like the second example and the third example. It's just kind of weird. So anyway, they're they're faced with a, a choice: they can either orbit Earth until they run out of gas and die, or they continue the mission and go on to Mars. So Jerry brings up the theory of the Great Filter. And he says that uh, the the great filter theory is that life is extremely rare. Most life can't reach the stars, and that's why we haven't found life. And Mars is um, humanity's hope for breaking through the great filter. And I love that. I, I love that about this episode because I'm I'm vaguely familiar with that this theory of the great filter and Fermi's paradox and like other kind of um, philosophical like theories and everything um, about you know alien life and everything. And it's just interesting to me. And I, I like that it's incorporated in this episode and Brant's speech. She gives a speech, um, about continuing humanity through their mission. And I found that really inspiring. Like this whole, this whole sequence was really, uh, well done in my opinion. So they decide to continue with the mission and they have a moment where they're, uh, kind of breaking through, uh, 
the Earth's atmosphere and launching into their kind of course toward Mars. And this was pretty cool, like in terms of just the design and everything and, and the dialogue and everything. So they kind of establish artificial gravity and Jerry has, has the stylus pen that's going to come into play later. He's showing like, okay, it's, it's floating. And then as soon as they kind of go into their whole thrust into, uh, their kind of course toward Mars, it, you know, falls back in his hand. And so after they are kind of going into their, their course toward Mars, uh, this segment ends with Ray lamenting that everyone on Earth is dead, and then it closes with a video displaying that it's no longer functioning because there's no ground support or anything. And so this is our first kind of like break in the episode. There are several, several, several um, uh, cuts to black where there's a display on it saying the duration to arrival. Um, and at this point, it's estimated 230 days to the destination. So uh, these segments are kind of differentiating each segment. It's like the passage of time. So I'll, I kind of went through the trouble of uh, com- uh, compiling my notes in each of these different segments. So Anyway, this time there are 230 days until destination. So we see brief glimpses before we get back to the ship of archival footage of past astronauts and space missions. And this is one moment where the episode kind of reminds me vaguely of the technique that Danny Boyle used in his movie Sunshine, which I'm, of course, a huge fan of, where he spliced frames of photos of the previous Icarus crew into uh, into the scenes in a particularly tense scene in the movie. And I'm not going to pick apart every single, um, scene that, that feels like it's, that it belongs in the movie sunshine, but that, that seems like it also there. I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to go ahead and do that. Um, so the previous, uh, where they, where they're debating whether or not they should continue the mission feels just like sunshine. And that's both a blessing and a curse because I love sunshine, but I can also kind of pick apart where this episode is a little bit um, derivative of that to an extent. Either, um, and that's that's it's hard to say because that's either intentional, like this episode was intentionally um, paying homage to Danny Boyle's movie, or it's just that this episode was a who's who of um, space movie tropes in and situations because as much as i love sunshine there's no denying that that movie is a little bit derivative of of past science fiction um space movies and everything so anyway more on sunshine as i go through this review i probably so there are these silent images of the crew and uh throughout this segment it's just kind of just showing like them all dealing with what's going on and dealing with the um trauma that they've that they've experienced that okay earth is dead uh they are the last they are presumably possibly the last of humanity and they're going to mars <laughs> um so these shots include jerry staring at an uh, eva suit and there's a cool shot of his reflection in the visor um there's a shot of brant sleeping uh casey sitting contemplatively uh ray is biting her nails and i don't think there's a shot of katie in it and i found that kind of odd um so that's a short a short thing we get another duration to arrival this time it's 211 days uh and in this scene the crew is attempting to call earth and 
to no avail. And Brant kind of takes charge and she says uh, she's going to prohibit calls to Earth because it's kind of pointless. And Katie questions that and says that um, – I can't remember exactly what she says, but it's something to the effect of like, are you sure that you want to do this or you're taking away their hope? And then Brant's like, I've made my decision or I've, I've said what I, what I want to do. So the next duration to arrival is 201 days and this – we come out of that of that black screen with more images of astronauts kind of spliced together. And this one had a lot of shots of different capsules and pods that have returned to Earth. And it looks like it's archival footage of the space program, which I kind of appreciated and thought was pretty cool. And in this segment, we see Brant exercising. And, like, there's this is a really cool, like, visual moment. There are close-up shots of the water in the rowing machine that's interspersed with Brant's mental image of her wife on Earth on, at the beach. And I thought that, that was a really interesting uh, dynamic to present in this short segment. I really like the way that the camera is stationary as she rows back and forth. And as she goes back and forth, it's bringing her into and out of focus. And that's just a really cool visual um, component to this segment, showing her kind of unease with her mental state, I guess. Next duration to arrival is 189 days. And this time we see Jerry doing something to Tina, um, kind of hacking it or running tests to check if it's real or a simulation. And at this moment when he's like, there are sparks and everything as he's to kind of fiddling with, uh, the controls and everything. And we see an image of a life form kind of, um, coming into the display. Um, it's, it's kind of like those, those toys, those kids toys that has like the, um, I don't know what exactly they're called, but like the imprint and like whatever it, uh, whatever it comes through on the other side. So like, it's like these little, like, uh, I don't know how you would describe it, (laughs) but like, it's like, it's, you push like your hand in it and you see a hand on the other side. Um, that's the kind of visual component to this. So, uh, next duration to arrival is 188 days. And I like the display on the wall that's showing the orbits of earth and Mars around the sun. Uh, because we come back from that and we see them all doing the obligatory slash quintessential crew meal scene in the, in, in the episode, which I'll get to that in a second. But like in the background, as Jerry is walking, walking around, you see just the display on the wall showing the orbits of earth and Mars. And there are marks for where the planets are at the time of launch and where they will be at the arrival. And I feel like that level of details is a nice touch to it. Um, so as I said, this is the obligatory crew meal scene and it highlights the, uh, like this, this device is supposed to highlight the camaraderie and closeness of the crew. And it is a, like I said, it's a quintessential scene in, uh, science fiction space movies and everything. Um, most notably, this is very much, uh, evoking memories of the movie alien. Um, although no one's chest bursts in the scene and also to call back again, sunshine and to highlight the other like kind of derivative nature of sunshine. Um, sunshine, (laughs) like Danny Boyle is such, he's, he's, he's so cool. Like if you listen to the commentary on sunshine, he's just very, very laid back and everything. But he mentions like, yeah, the, you know, we're aping, the meal scene from alien because that's the best way to show the closeness of the crew and everything and, um, and highlight their different personalities and everything. So 
this is uh, paying homage to those two movies, I would say, or I would assume. So what they're saying in the scene is uh, Jerry references War of the Worlds, but no one seems to really know it as a reference point, and it kind of made me wonder how far in the future this episode was meant to be. And then he immediately says, after I thought that, he says it was like 100 years ago, so... Arguably, this takes place probably around 2030 and like the 2030s or 2040s. And uh, Casey, this is an interesting little Easter egg. Casey says, I really love that show Wild Cards. And at first, I wondered if that was a reference to Hulu picking up a TV series based on George R.R. Martin's Wild Cards uh, anthology stories. But uh, from a light Google search and finding a... uh, an article from vulture.com. Uh, it is apparently a reference to um, uh, a Glenn Morgan show called Space Above and Beyond. Uh, it was co created by Glenn Morgan. It was kind of a one season wonder, so it didn't go past the first season. Um, and I thought that was a really cool, like, homage um, <laughs> or, uh, or reference point and everything. Um, yeah, so I, and I tried to look and see if Space Above and Beyond was available to stream anywhere, but I don't think it is. Um, but yeah, uh, it's a pretty cool little reference point. I'll put a link to that Vulture article in the show notes as well. So uh, Casey asks to for Ray to pr- pass the broccoli. And knowing what's to come with those two characters, I kind of I found that kind of confusing on repeat viewings because I, I I thought is it like supposed to be flirtatious since they're about to since it's about to be revealed that they are having sex. Um, but, uh, no, like upon like further viewings, um, I kind of came to realize that it's probably just Ray being, um, upset over the fact that they went ahead with the mission and that, uh, that they didn't abort like she wanted to. And she's like her, her, her vote didn't count toward, uh, whether or not they should leave or stay. And now everyone's dead and they'll, they'll never see, uh, she'll never see her family again. And I kind of, I, I feel that that's, that's an interesting, um, dynamic, uh, to present because she's pretty down. So at that moment, the lights flicker because Tina isn't getting the firmware updates from ground support that she should be since everyone's dead. And everyone's kind of like, uh, like, I don't know, like Katie kind of tries to deflect with conversation about the tomatoes. Um, and then like, like she's trying to, she's trying to keep it together, keep everyone sane. And I really appreciated that as it kind of leads to her character arc throughout the episode where she's kind of taking, um, she's, she's told that she's going to be the mom of the, of the crew, but more on that later. So at this point, Jerry kind of soft pitches his theory saying that the tomatoes will taste one way to someone, but another to someone else, the same way that, uh, someone can like a song when he can just be like, no, that's garbage. Um, and he's at this point, it seems like he's trying to just introduce some philosophical debate to the proceedings and Brant just shuts him down. <laughs> She's like, are you going to do this the entire time? It reminded me of the John Mulaney bit where he talks about his dad being at like Lion King on ice and his dad hears a kid sitting in front of him saying, uh, that's Simba or whatever. And his dad just says, are you going to talk the entire time? Um, anyway, that, that gag reminded me of like, what, like, France shutting down Jerry reminded me of that. And I like Jerry's response to that. He's like, I didn't know that I wasn't allowed to, you know, voice my opinion or whatever. Um, it's just very like, like it, it seemed like it bothered him, but he's like trying to, you know, be, uh, kind of, I don't know, funny about it, I guess. 
um, or I guess passive aggressive would really be the, <laughs> the way to describe that. So Brant ends up leaving the leaving the table, and it's like she's it's starting to get to her. So next duration to arrival is 155 days, and we see Brant trying to call home, and she gets her wife's voicemail, and. Like what I appreciate about this is that the kind of visual aspect of it is as the phone is ringing uh, before she gets the voicemail, she's picturing the phone ringing um, and it's somber and it's sad and she ends up crying and everything. Um, and I kind of wonder if that phone was a reference to something because uh, it looked like an old timey phone, like a, like a old rotary phone. And even though I just watched long distance call, I wonder if that's supposed to be a reference to the toy phone. Oh, that would be really cool. Huh. I th- I, that might be. I'm going to make a unilateral decision. Yes, that was a reference to that. Uh, uh, as the kids say, don't at me. Um, I, I can't pull that off. So anyway, she hears a ruckus, and it ends up being Casey and Ray having sex. And I thought it was kind of funny. There's this uh, Titanic moment where um, Ray puts her hand up against the fogged window, and I was like, okay, that's fine, whatever. Um, I thought that was kind of funny. So... When Brant is looking way too long, lingering um, at the uh, through the through the window, Ray kind of smirks at her, and like like she's very like clearly like like kind of getting glee out of the fact that Brant is uh, observing them. And I kind of wonder if that was just a reaction to like like Ray not getting what she wanted in terms of of aborting the mission and everything, and she's like this is her kind of paying back like kind of ruffling feathers in a way, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm kind of reaching here. I don't know if that's necessarily the intention, but that's kind of the vibe I got from it. So the next scene is Brant addressing them saying like, we can't afford any accidents, take on any additional crew and we cannot risk any children. Um, and Jerry ends up backing her up in this and explains that their food supply is designed to accommodate them and them alone. And, yeah, so, and I did, I thought it was funny that Casey was like, we've been really careful, and I'm like, have you though? Because, like, you were, you were having sex. I assume that they, no one brought condoms, um, and I don't know, I just, it feels like, it, it felt kind of weird. Anyway, uh, Ray lashes out because, uh, she's, she's upset because she's like, now you guys care about my life. Uh, because Jerry had said like, well, if she were to start breastfeeding, she would need more calories and everything, and that would be disastrous. And, uh, yeah, so she was, she's upset and she kind of storms out. Next duration to arrival is 134 days and we see Katie coming up to Brant, um, and Brant is laying in her bed holding her wedding ring. So as previously established, uh, Katie had, uh, divorced her, her um, uh, husband before the launch. Um, and Brant asks her point blank if she regrets divorcing her husband before the mission. And Katie says that she had a choice between her husband and a round trip ticket to Mars. And she ended up getting none of that. And I, I like that as just a piece of dialogue. I think that that's a cool way to demonstrate the toll that like their decision to, to go on with the mission is taking on, on their psyche without overdoing it or, or, um, really overdoing it. Yeah. So, Katie then asks Brant about Brant's dream. And I felt like this is a, a little bit clunky because like, it's not really established that Brant has been having nightmares or anything that not that I can remember. So like coming out of the gate with Katie just saying like, Hey, tell me about your dream. It felt a little, um, a little, a little out of nowhere also. And I know I said that I wasn't going to do this and nitpick, but, uh, this scene is 
pretty close to a scene in Sunshine. <laughs> uh, there's a scene where Kappa and um, oh, I can't remember Rose Byrne's character's name. That's one of my favorite movies. Anyway, uh, Kappa, played by uh, Killian Murphy, goes up to Rose Byrne's character and uh, they have a they have a talk like when like kind of laying in bed, um, saying like uh, I think she mentions that she's been having the same nightmare or Kappa says that he's been having a nightmare or whatever. Um, one of them has a nightmare and I need to rewatch sunshine. But anyway, they say that it's the same thing every time the, like falling into the surface of the sun. Cause the whole point of sunshine is they're flying to the sun to essentially restart it by launching a bomb into it. Um, cause it's fading, it's dying. Um, so anyway, so this, uh, this scene in six degrees of freedom felt very reminiscent of that scene. And, Brant kind of tells her about the uh, the dream that she has seeing her her wife on the beach and kind of waiting for her on Earth. Um, and Katie kind of reassures her and says that uh, she's not alone, that the crew is a family and Brant is the commander, so she's like their mom. And Brant's like, no, you're the mom. I'm nothing but the commander of a slow suicide. And the music in the scene is really beautiful. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and play this scene, a clip of this scene. So here you go. This is the nightmare. You're not alone. We're in this with you. You're our commander. We're a family and we need our mum. You're the mum. Mum commander of nothing but a slow suicide. And the similarities to similar scenes in Sunshine aside, I think that that's a really beautiful scene um, in the episode. So... Next, duration to arrival. Like I said, there are a lot of cuts to the different durations of arrival um, shots. And I, I don't know. It, I don't know. It got kind of cumbersome when I was making my notes. But in the moment when watching the episode, it wasn't a bother. So 115 days and we see quick shots of astronauts again before we get back into the ship. And by the way, this is a good uh, – I guess this would be a good part to um, bring it up. One of my – I wouldn't even – I'm not going to go ahead and – I'm not going to say that this is a complaint because it's it's really not a complaint. It's just a – a little observation that I had, but um, as much as this episode is paying homage to space, um, space science fiction, space odyssey science fiction, um, the one thing that I kind of wish um, it did, like one one element that it kind of neglected um, when paying homage to this type of science fiction, is that the ship itself isn't named. Um, like we have Tina, the AI, but the actual, and, and it's, you know, it's a Bradbury heavy mission to Mars. That's the, that's the name of the mission. And also like it's, it's Whipple aeronautics and everything. Like all that is naming like different things around it, but the actual vessel that they're in, the actual ship does not have a name. And like sunshine, it was Icarus. Star Trek has the enterprise. Star Wars has uh, a millennium Falcon. Um, and also like alien has an Astrama. Uh, Nostromo. Um, and I had a whole bunch of other ones, but I can't, I'm spacing the rest, but uh, no pun intended. Um, so yeah, I just, I kind of wish that that was, I wish that there was something there. Like they could have, like that could have been a good, a good, uh, way to kind of incorporate another original series Easter egg, but, but whatever. It, it doesn't hamper the episode or anything. I just thought that, like, for an episode that is, um, 
so much paying homage to a specific type of science fiction, it kind of neglected this kind of staple of science fiction. Oh, another example was the uh, the Normandy in the Mass Effect video game series. So, anyway, um, I should really play Mass Effect Andromeda. Um, anyway, because the, the ship in Andromeda has a different name. Um because it's obviously a different ship. I can't remember the name of it, though. So, anyway, back to this episode. Uh, Ray is trying to communicate with Earth to no avail. This is, again, it's 115 days to Mars, and Ray's trying to call Earth. And Casey tries to convince her to stop, and he asks, what if someone answers, then what? And then he, then he says, I'd just rather have faith that they're not all gone. And I think the implication of that is rather than confirm it or kind of keep keep trying to make contact and have that be just chipping away at that faith of it. And this was a moment that I thought was really cool. Um, I really appreciated this moment because that's when a transmission actually comes through. And you can argue that also these little breaks here, like the conv- the timing of them are very convenient because it's like right after a character says something, but like you can argue that th- we'll get to that. In a- we'll get to it at the end, but is are the aliens manipulating things on the ship as they're observing the mission um or is it completely impartial and i'll talk about that later but anyway the clip there the, or the transmission that comes through is actually a clip from the monsters and they mentioned that like we've been broadcasting into space for a long time and we just ended up picking up one of our own signals from long ago so um i th- i thought that was really interesting and one of the more um, kind of blink and you'll miss it lines is Katie's response to that. She says, so the only evidence there's advanced life on earth is fake. And I feel like that, like I said, it's a blink and you'll miss it line, but it carries a lot of philosophical weight. And it's something that is really, um, um, something that really is food for thought. It kind of, it kind of makes you think a little bit like the transmissions we bounce into space through television and radio waves and everything, uh, for the most part is scripted, um, stuff like it's, it's dramatizations and everything. Um, and it's interesting because it like to think about it, it's not an authentic representation of what life on earth is like, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting way to kind of, uh, talk about that as the only evidence there's advanced life on earth is fake. So I thought I appreciated that line. And I thought it was interesting. Um, so Katie brings this makeshift instrument to Ray, uh, switching to another scene. Um, and it's, shown that they're putting something together and Katie is um Katie is is trying to reassure Ray that they're all in this together. She says once you've exhausted your anger, you'll end up like Alexa. Uh meaning very kind of um uh kind of withdrawn um emotionally and everything. And it's an interesting it's an interesting thing especially since they're doing this they're trying to make a, a makeshift instrument for um Alexa. So then we get another scene where Jerry or we get a scene where Jerry is uh, looking through his notes and data. And there in this moment, there are more shots of archival astronauts kind of interspersed with those like him going through his little like notepad. Um, I thought that was interesting because we don't like this is one of the only times where we get the um, archival astronaut shots without like having a break in the like uh, – like, durate time to, like, the duration to arrival scenes. 
Um, I thought that was kind of interesting, uh, worth commenting on, I guess. So Jerry goes into the bathroom, and I want to highlight here, the camera work in this scene is really fantastic, because we're seeing everything from, uh, we're seeing Jerry from his uh, reflection, we're seeing his reflection through through the viewpoint of his eyes. And I don't know, just the way that the camera follows his head movements when he's uh, like washing his hands and and washing his face and drying his face. I just like the way the camera kind of moves around with that. And at this point, we see Jerry collecting his data. And he's using his bare hands to scrape liquid from the bottom of what I assumed was the toilet. Um, and in that moment, um, on my first viewing, I really thought that he was testing to see if Ray was pregnant. Um, that wasn't the case, though. And thank God, because that was kind of gross um, <laughs> if that was the case. Um so, and we'll, we'll get to what he was doing here in a second, but we get another duration to arrival interruption. Uh, duration to arrival is 76 days, so we're getting closer. And we uh, cut to the crew singing happy birthday to Brant and giving her a little cupcake and everything with fake um, candles on, on it. And, like, and then... I don't know. So, so they give their present to Brant, which is a song, and the song is "California Dreamin'" by the Mamas and the Papas, and they start singing. And like at that moment, I'm like, "What is up with this crew and singing?" Because they sang um, that family song at the beginning, and now they're like they're saying "Happy Birthday," of course, and then now they're singing a Mamas and the Papas song. It's just I I don't know. It's just like it's it's weird. I I don't know. So as they're singing, Katie starts to break down and cry. And she says that she, she says that she doesn't want to be the mom of the crew. She can't, like, it's like she can't handle the pressure. And that's when Jerry decides to drop the bomb that he's been sitting on, metaphorically. Uh, he thinks they're in a simulation and not really in space. And he says that he's been collecting data from the start and, uh, he has evidence that will prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they are in a simulation rather than being actually in space going to Mars. And this ends up being kind of a, a coping mechanism in his men- mental state breaking down. But it actually tracks well. Like there's – it tracks well as a uh, as a uh, possible simulation because everything – like they don't see Earth um, through like a window or anything because of that porthole cover uh, being covered for radiation. And – it's like it's all kind of based on faith that they that they are going that they that they are going to Mars, and it's just that's when he he mentions here in a second that um, there he believes that they're in a six degrees of freedom simulation, and the six degrees of freedom is um, a simulation that moves like like that has six different degrees of movement to. Um, I don't know how exactly to phrase it. Um, six degrees of, of movement that will give you the simulation of being like in space, I suppose. So right then there's a solar flare that sets off an alarm. And again, another reference, uh, another, not nitpick or anything, but it seems like it's an homage to something that happens in sunshine, but that's neither here nor there. So, um, it's, Really interesting timing because it leads you to think that they really are in a simulation and that the ar- the alarm is to deflect their attention. Not only that, it seems like it's possible that maybe the aliens are manipulating things to keep people to keep them away from figuring out that they are you know being observed at least. Um, and at this moment, this is where everything goes into complete chaos. And I feel like the buildup 
toward this moment. Um, it's paying it, it, it like there's there's a decent amount of buildup because like everything up until this point has been pretty much all character based and reaction based to what's going on with their mission and everything. And I feel like the payoff of this is pretty well earned because while it hasn't been necessarily a um a big tension building episode just having this having this reaction from a character um kind of a almost psychotic kind of break or mental break is satisfying because we've been building up the characterization of each character as the episode has been um progressing and at this moment though i do have to mention that there was a weird act break um another podcast who's been reviewing um the new episodes. I can't remember which podcast it was. It may have been, it may have been Tom Elliott on the Twilight Zone podcast or maybe Craig Beam on Between Light and Shadow. Actually, I don't think it was his because he hasn't, uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, one of those podcasts, one podcast that has been talking about it mentions the act breaks throughout the episodes and it's weird that it's, since it's on a streaming platform and I haven't really noticed them except for here. Like this is a weird, break because i'm watching it without without ads like i have the cbs all access um subscription that has no ads so i assume that this is where like an ad would come in if i did have that but i do want to highlight that like when we get back from that weird act break like that black screen that and coming back into it um Jerry is really reiterating his hypothesis that they're in a simulation. I'm going to go ahead and play a clip here of that as it, as it switches from the, from the cut to black and then back into the scene. So here's a clip of what I'm talking about. Uh, I got news for you. None of this is real. It's just a test. None of this is real. <laughs> None of it. It's just a test. on this ship are the result of an endurance simulation experiment so when we get back from that obviously like i said jerry is reiterating his hypothesis that they're in a simulation and at first it kind of sounds weird like they're coming back from a network tv commercial break and he has to catch viewers up but it's streaming so like we don't have that um so i don't know if i think that other podcast i don't, i'm so sorry i can't remember what exactly what what exact podcast it was but they um said that maybe they're going to repurpose the series and have it run in syndication on cbs at some point which would be kind of tricky with the uh profanity and everything but I don't know. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I think that may have been the Twilight Zone podcast by Tom Elliott. So anyway, uh, at this point, Jerry is completely off the deep end um, as he gradually gets more and more hysterical as he presents his theory. Um, the alarm and Tina's instructions and the panic of the other crew members as they're trying to work through this problem of the solar flare, uh, all that escalates as Jerry gradually gets more and more hysterical. And what I appreciate about this is that Katie in the scene is trying to appease him and speak to him with empathy saying like, um, saying like, okay, I understand like, like you're putting everyone in danger though. Um, I believe you uh, like she's like, she's trying to get him to like, you know, get to his seat on the flight deck. Uh, but he won't listen. He just keeps spouting his theory. And at this moment, that's where he talks about, um, 
the idea that they're in a six degrees of freedom simulation. And from what I gather in the panic, um, it's kind of hard to discern exactly what he's saying as far as his tests and everything. But what I gathered is that what I, what I think is the case is that the test he was running in the bathroom was to see if there was any condensation or crystallization in the bathroom. Because if I'm understanding it correctly, the toilet ejects their waste ejects their waste into space and contact with the vacuum of space should create some kind of condensation or crystallization in the inside of the, the toilet thing. That's my understanding. At least I don't know if that's what they were going for, but that's my understanding of the scene. So if you have another interpretation or a more correct interpretation, let me know. Cause I was kind of a little bit confused because like for all that this episode does well for me, for my taste, my, like I said, my very specific science fiction sensibilities, um, this scene is very hectic and very, uh, just crazy. Like I really like, uh, Jefferson White's performance in the scene as he, like Jerry is breaking down his theory while also breaking like his mental, um, kind of integrity. Um, it's, it's a really good performance by, by Jefferson White, but it's so chaotic that it's hard to tell. Like, like you, it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of overwhelming. Like the amount of information that he's giving that could be important, but like, I couldn't tell like what the hell he was saying most of the time. Um, but anyway, so as he gets deeper into his rant, he starts to break down emotionally and the cracks in the confidence of his coping mechanism he has, um, like it's starting to show and he starts to break down a little bit and he's, he like gets very just, uh, angry, I guess he said, like he yells and this is one of the moments where I, I loved it. He yells that they've been watching us the whole time. And he said, like he yells that they made us think that our family are dead and it's just like he's so like the energy is just so uh big and crazy and it's interesting because he was seeing the aliens observing them um coming through the display and everything so like he's half right um but i just i love the com- the the way that jefferson white commits in the scene i i just really liked it so it culminates with jerry going into the airlock to prove that it's a simulation and he effectively commits suicide um and we cut to um, what I thought was a really cool visual callback to uh, the quintessential dining scene, uh, meal scene of the crew, because we see like the the table that they were at and they were eating at kind of just vacant of everyone because everyone's on the flight deck and Jerry has left the building, <laughs> has left the ship. And we get California Dreamin' playing... Um, as everything on on the table is like floating in zero g um then we get a cut to duration to arrival 67 days and when we get back to the crew everyone's mourning the loss of jerry and i thought that it was an interesting i did want to highlight kind of an interesting piece of set design here that when katie goes into the bathroom the sign before she enters it displays this unisex figure with vacant written underneath it and when katie goes into it it switches to occupied and the figure becomes the figure of a woman like the kind of quintessential like woman display figure of like bathroom occupancy, um, which is, uh, I don't know. (laughs) I feel like that that's, there's a joke, like that's my album name or whatever, but, uh, (laughs) name of your sex tape, I guess for Brooklyn nine, nine fans. Anyway, 
I just thought that was kind of a nice touch to the set design to make it look more futuristic. And it's just such a such a quick thing, and it just goes a long way to show that they are in the future in this high tech spaceship and everything. I just I appreciated that as in terms of a uh, set design and everything. So we see that Katie is running the same test that Jerry was running, and I don't know. I feel like in a in a in a if they had more time, it would have been interesting to have. Katie like take up this paranoid mantle that Jerry had um and it kind of just making it seem like it was uh I don't know kind of kind of like his sacrifice was like them tr- them actually like figuring it out which we get kind of some of that there but I I would have liked it like if this was a feature length movie uh, which I mean it's 54 minutes so it's damn near feature length anyway but if this was a, a feature length movie Katie taking up the mantle of Jerry as a paranoid person, like running tests and everything. Um, I think that that would have been an interesting character development for the crew and everything. But since it's just an hour long episode of a television show, uh, we don't have that time. So it's shown that Katie is running the same test that Jerry was running. And Brant asks like what she found. And I thought this was really interesting because Katie found that there is crystallization. And I found that really interesting because I don't know what, like, I read it one of two ways. So it's either that if it was true, like, okay, Jerry really did have a psychotic break and he just couldn't cope with, with the truth of what was going on or couldn't, couldn't cope with the drama of losing everyone on earth and not being able to, like, just, he couldn't handle it. So his mind kind of led him toward this, this, uh, paranoid kind of thing so like even if there were was crystallization like he couldn't see it like i kind of like that as as a as a way um uh i i i don't know i I kind of like that uh, interpretation of it but i also on the other hand have another interpretation where is this meant to are we meant to believe like now that we're you know if you take into context the entire episode did the aliens do the aliens at the end have more control over the mission rather than just observing so is it possible that jerry got the jump on them and after he called them out for it they manipulated the ship to include the crystallization uh so that no one else would be the wiser um i just i just think that that's an that's an interesting kind of fork in the road of this narrative that you could have two completely different interpretations of this scene where where uh, katie finds the crystallization that jerry was uh so sure wasn't there that led to him dying um it just i i think that that would have been it, it's interesting to have those two forking uh uh interpretations but regardless to the crew this revelation tells them that jerry was wrong and the implication is that he went crazy and so we get um, the crew having the spiritual metaphysical conversation about Jerry and what it means when someone is truly gone. And I don't know, they're kind of like in, they're in their like bunk beds and stuff. And I like Jessica Williams acting in, in this moment. Like she's talking about how she's so sure that like when her dad died, she knew that he, like she still felt his presence and everything. And she, as a scientist, she knows that it's, that it's, um, that the, that there's there's scientific reasons for that feeling but she can't reconcile her scientific mind with the fact that like she has this this profound feeling about it like i really like that's one of my favorite things about science fiction is this moment where people can talk about like this the spiritual side like the um science versus versus 
um, you know, the rational thought or logic or anything. That's one of my favorite, one of my absolute favorite things about Sunshine is that dynamic in that movie. Um, because that movie has like very clear, like science versus religion or, or, um, uh, logic versus versus faith. Um, it's just it's it's really good. Also, kind of shout out to Lost. Like it that plays with a lot with that with the dichotomy between Jack and Locke and Lost. So I love that in science fiction, and I like Jessica Williams acting. But I feel like the episode doesn't quite build up to this scene that properly. Um, I kind of feel like it. Well, I guess it does because we did have the meal scene where they kind of brought that up, but. I don't know. I just feel like I feel like there should have been more um, more uh, kind of philosophical or spiritual metaphysical conversations throughout the episode to kind of earn that. Also, it ends with a joke from Casey um, knocking on the ceiling and making light of their friend's death. And I felt like that was kind of clunky. Um, I felt like that was just kind of I, I, if, I don't know. I feel it felt like the episode was trying to uh, make it a lighter scene when I feel like the drama of it could have necessitated it staying as as dramatic as it was. But I don't know. It, it, it that felt just kind of clunky. But Katie brings it back to serious, and she talks about how Jerry lost his home, and that they are each other's home now, and. Um, I, I really like that. And um, she says, we may not have a home, but we have each other. We're a family. And then uh, I, uh, I think Casey says, and Tina, family. Uh, and then that plays that annoying-ass song from the beginning of it to lighten the scene a bit. Like that, I like that. Also in this scene, um, we see that Katie uh, has a toy Northern Gold Star plane. And I thought that was a nice touch. Um, I just wish the camera didn't focus on it and let it fill the entire frame. Um, I would have liked more subtlety, as I hinted at before. Um, but I, I liked it. I thought it was a nice a nice touch. Um, also, I don't like... Okay, before we get to... We're almost at the end of this episode. I didn't really get a lot of... Or catch a lot of um, Easter eggs or anything for like early episodes or, or um, original series episodes. So... That's why I think that, that that phone image may have been a reference to long distance call. Um, also, I have a leak in my apartment, so if the mic is picking any of that up, it's, you know, that's what it is. But anyway, okay, so we get the last uh, cut to duration scene, and it just says Arrival, um, which, by the way, Arrival is a great movie, um, <laughs> apropos of nothing. Um, so here we go. They finally arrive at Mars, and it's the moment of truth. Is it real or a simulation? And I did want to mention, uh, it looks like Katie has, like, hives on her neck in that, and I'm not sure what that's about, or, like, it's not paid off or called back or anything. Um, maybe, I, I, maybe it wasn't supposed to be anything. Maybe that's just the actress's complexion or whatever, but I don't know. I just, I felt, I noticed it. So... Everything on the displays is digitized, and it looks like a video game on the displays. And I, I, um, I felt like that makes the tension of whether or not they are actually at Mars or in a simulation a little bit more uh, palpable. And I, I really like that. So we get the big reveal. They open the porthole and find that yes, they are on Mars. And I think that there's a, a potentially more satisfying ending here. 
Um, but I wonder if there is a way that they could have ended it in a more ambiguous way, like, like regarding where they were, like maybe when the camera pulled out, we see, we don't, I don't know, maybe a soundstage, but then again, that would answer one, that wouldn't be ambiguous. That would answer one way or the other. But anyway, the camera pulls out and we see just that it is Mars. And, uh, I don't know, Brant, I don't know, Brant's last line is, Jerry died for nothing. And I'm like, Jesus, Brant, like, you know, show some compassion or something. Like, that's kind of just, damn. But, uh, the last scene as we fade out from the, from the, uh, shot of the ship on Mars is, we get, we go through, um, for lack of a better word, we go through like a filter. Um, and we see we're into like an alien room and it's display. It has a bunch of different displays, uh, that echo, like that were the displays of the, uh, opening moment of the episode, um, showing the mission. And we see Jerry laying on kind of a watery floor. Um, that also probably has a leaky, um, air conditioner, um, like my apartment now. Anyway, uh, voiceover in the room states that enough data has been collected. And like I said before, that voiceover has a, um, in the, in the closed captions says, uh, that it is, that that voiceover belongs to a public affairs officer. So I don't know what that is all about or what we're to infer from that and why it's English also, um, because the, we get alien dialogue and we get a back and forth presumably between two aliens saying that, uh, they have exceeded our expectations and passed through the great filter. Uh, most life never does, but it took the near destruction of their planet for them to finally do so. Uh, then says, uh, their relationships remain strong, but they remained curious. This one discovered we were watching impressive, um, indeed impressive. Uh, they are worthy of salvation. Prepare to make contact. And it ends with Jerry staring and smiling, um, staring into like the displays showing, uh, Mars and it zooms in on his eye. And then that's it. Uh, we get, uh, Peel's closing narration, which I will play right now. It is said that seeing is believing. The crew of the Bradbury heavy mission to Mars might tell you otherwise. They are about to find out that they couldn't trust their own eyes. But who or what can we trust if not ourselves? The answer lies somewhere between takeoff and landing in the Twilight Zone. So, uh, that is Six Degrees of Freedom. I think overall, um, this episode owes quite a bit to movies like Sunshine and Alien, like I said before. Um, maybe also Event Horizon. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but it does tell a unique enough story that is compelling in its own right and steeped in this trauma of leaving the Earth behind amidst just multiple nuclear wars. And I, I love that. I love this episode for that reason. Um, for the, I have like I like I've been doing with these other reviews and everything since I've fallen a little bit behind with the release schedule of the new Twilight Zone. Um I haven't read or listened to any feedback um or any uh any podcasts or anything anything. I haven't seen any reactions online, but I'd be very curious how to learn like what the reaction to this episode was because I really loved this episode. I thought it was very, very strong, but also I couldn't really detect that much of like a political commentary or anything in the episode. So like the people who have been kind of complaining about, 
um, the show being about like, oh, social justice warriors and stuff and just kind of having a bug up their ass about that aspect of it. I kind of wonder how those viewers in particular feel about this episode because I couldn't really pick up anything except for, uh, nukes are bad. Like, um, uh, the podcast, uh, between science and superstition, I saw that their, um, their, ti- their title for this review was nukes are scary. And I, I really appreciate that. I can't wait to hear what they think of this episode, but of the twilight zone. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very curious what, um, the reaction is to this episode, but me in my own little vacuum here, that could be a simulation. I don't know. But, uh, my reaction is that I really, really found this episode compelling, interesting, and it is right in my wheelhouse of science fiction fandoms and everything. So I think that it did that sub genre of science fiction, the whole spacefaring adventure kind of, uh, um, humanity, uh, moral quandaries and stuff. I think it did that justice. I think it did that specific type of science fiction justice. And I really enjoyed this episode. So let me know what you guys thought of six degrees of freedom. Of course, like I said, you can email me at Matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Reach out to me on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthology pod, or simply tweet me at OV anthology pod. And also, um, thank you once again to my, uh, emailer who emailed in my listener who emailed in, that I'm keeping anonymous. And then also thank you once again to Robert for the very, very kind iTunes review. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys um, like the show. If you do check out, uh, go ahead and uh, go ahead and leave a review on iTunes. Also, there's another website called podchaser.com. You can leave a review, a rating and review there. Um, I have all of the obsessive viewer shows on that website as well. Um, And it doesn't like, you can just go on, go in your browser, sign up and leave a review that way. It's, it's not, um, doesn't require like a a specific like iTunes account or anything like that. So having said all that, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Once again, I'll go ahead and say, check out my other podcasts, obsessive viewer. We are finishing or have just finished our review series on the last season of game of Thrones. We also have a bunch of movie reviews on there. We're up to episode 283. Um, we have a detective Pikachu review coming out next week. So check that out at obsessiveviewer.com. Also check out tower junkies, which is my, uh, spinoff podcast about, uh, Stephen King and the Dark Tower series and just all things Stephen King with my friend Tiny, who's been on this podcast before. Check that out at towerjunkiespod.com. New episodes of that podcast are going to be coming out soon. And yeah, next time on the main feed of this podcast, I'm going to be reviewing a uh, long distance call and also check out my just recently released review of uh, the Prime Mover, which I loved. And, uh, yeah. And then next on the bonus episode feed, I, or it's the same feed, but the next bonus episode is going to be my review of, I think it's not all men. Uh, yeah. So I'm very excited about that because I haven't watched the episode yet. So I'm going to go ahead and watch that now and then edit this episode and release it. So thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. 
If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewers annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at Facebook.com slash As Good As It Gets Band. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Yeah!